Hey, so what's going on? Check it out. Catching up with some new movies here lately. And, you know, now that we're in October, as I'm recording this, I'm thinking, oh, it's a good time to catch up with some horror movies, right? Of course. Definitely. Now, here I am still trying to do this thing of watching a new movie, something that I've never seen before, something that's at least new to me. And, uh, So here, we're going back to some horror films, specifically from the 80s, because I feel like this is a time where I grew up watching a lot of films, but horror movies weren't really my thing, because I was still a kid. I was still between like 5 and 15, let's say. That wasn't a genre I was really familiar with at that time, maybe into the late 80s as I started getting a little older, but you know, this all kicked off with in September, going to see Stanley Kubrick and watching all of those films again, some of them for the first time. And I did get to see The Shining on the big screen, thanks to Alamo Drafthouse. And I tell you, that was an interesting experience because as many times as I've seen the film, there was still stuff that I hadn't seen before somehow, or I kind of saw it in a different way. It landed differently. And I think that does have to do with the theatrical experience of really not being able to set your attention anywhere else other than the giant screen and the sound in front of you. And so uh, it was something I'm glad I did. I'm glad I got to watch it again. I did also sit down and watch uh, Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining that came out, uh, I think, about five years ago now. And I saw it in the theaters. So these films aren't new to me necessarily, but they did really re-energize my my, uh, enthusiasm for horror films, like good ones, you know, good ones that have uh, an interesting story, some interesting characters. And so it reminded me, like, I feel like the heyday of that kind of thing was in the 80s. Because you got... Filmmaking techniques and special effects and all that was really kind of taking the next leap before you get into like computer generated stuff and, you know, where it starts to really turn into something that is so obviously fake. Now, we've kind of come full circle, though, in a way, because CG at this point today has gotten really good. So it's hard to know sometimes what's fake and what's not. But here in the 80s, I wanted to focus on two filmmakers that I think really upped the game, really uh, pushed the envelope in terms of in terms of the stories, in terms of the special effects, the makeup effects, all that kind of stuff. Uh, um, I'm talking about John Carpenter and David Cronenberg. And now they had been making films in the 70s. Halloween was the biggest one, I think, for John Carpenter, really kicking off his career as a, as a kind of a top tier horror filmmaker, you know, um, David Cronenberg. I remember seeing a film of his from, I think like the early seventies and I'm kind of blanking on the name of it right now, but it was, uh, it was about people living in an apartment building and they become kind of infected by this, um, strange, weird sexual virus in a way. I don't know any other better way to describe it at the moment, but I did get to watch The Fog, which was in 1980, and that was a film that, I, you know, they remade it sometime, I don't know, the early 2000s, I feel like, 
And I remember seeing it. I remember not being that impressed with it, maybe just because I knew it was a remake. And even though I'd never seen the original, I just kind of went into it, um, I don't know, kind of hesitant, kind of not expecting a lot. And so going back to watch the original now, after all these years, even with the, uh, honestly, I, I don't really remember the remake that much. Um, what I can say is, you know, this is a film that I had seen parts of it on TV probably throughout the 80s. And I just had really the wrong idea of what this film was, I guess. It's strange how time and memories can do that. They can kind of play tricks with you and you kind of forget or you maybe didn't even really know in the first place what you were, what you had in mind. So this movie, The Fog, I mean, it's, for whatever reason, I always thought this was a story set in New England. I don't know, something about the coastline and lighthouses and climate of the whole story. It just seemed like this is a New England story. But it's not. It's set in California. And I that took me a minute to wrap my head around because I just didn't see that as the right setting. So already I'm kind of resisting a little bit, but once I kind of understand who everybody is and what is going on, you know, there's this fog that is, that is rolling into this coastal town and the people of the town are not quite sure what's happening. There starts to become like a, they start to uncover that there's this strange origin to it. And, you know, I got to say, as far as the story itself, uh, the characters and the plot of it, uh, I didn't find it all that interesting. Thematically, though, I thought it was actually kind of inventive, kind of different. You know, the idea of this fog, this very nebulous, uncontrollable, just kind of unstoppable source of death that is preying on these people and you can't really determine or predict what's going to happen with it. You know, it, it was just an interesting metaphor, I felt like, for the past and how it can catch up with you, how it can find you. Even though you try to run from it, you try to avoid it, you try to lock it out, it can still find you. And so that was a, an, an interesting way to approach that concept. Um, I don't know if it's entirely effective in terms of the plot of the film, though. I just feel like it's a little bit horror movie-ish. But it does have some interesting uh, practical, visual, uh, special effects. And I, and I say visual effects because there is even some of the way that the fog is done. Like, it looks like... I, I, I couldn't quite figure out how they might have done it. Maybe some optical effects for the time. But it's interesting the kind of low-tech approach to it all. And yet, I think that's really where John Carpenter, as a filmmaker, that's where his lane is. I mean, is, is building these scenes and these sequences that are that really hang on these practical effects, whether it's something like The Thing or something like Halloween. The idea of having real things that you can see and, and they're interacting in a real way, it's, it's kind of hard to deny that. And the other thing that really shows itself here in this film, and and the, the more I started to think about it, I see like it's in a lot of John Carpenter's films, is this idea of 
it's it's like a, a stillness, like a deadly stillness where you see a character or an entity or some figure just standing completely still, like in shadow or in silhouette. And I don't know, it's, it's like a strange uneasiness that builds uh, an uncertainty because you don't know why this is happening. You don't know why this person, this character, this being is standing there and they're not saying anything. They're not doing anything. I mean, famously, of course, Halloween, Michael Myers, he just stands at the end of the road watching Laurie Strode, right? Um, and this film, you've got these, these uh, beings that come out of the fog. And it's an interesting thing to think that film is such a kind of dynamic medium you know, the, the way that it can really use motion and, and energy and movement. And yet John Carpenter found this sort of, I don't know, this little narrow corner of being able to use stillness. And sometimes it's effective. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a little bit hokey or it feels a little more like a, a gimmick in a way. But here and in some of his other films, I do see it actually really work in an effective way. And so, look, and so The Fog was an interesting watch just to kind of jump back in time for a minute. I did go a little bit forward. You know, I've seen other Carpenter films from the 80s, of course. I mean, if I pull up um, any of his films throughout that period, I mean, you have Halloween in the late 70s. But then you do get into other films where throughout the 80s, I mean, this one, The Fog, really kicks it off in 1980. But you've got Escape from New York. You've got The Thing. You've got Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China. And we kind of round it out with Prince of Darkness and They Live. Now, with all of those films, the only ones I've never seen before were The Fog, Starman, and Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness was the next one. I, I I wanted to check that out because that felt like, okay, we're we're in classic John Carpenter territory here. And it's strange because it feels, it just feels kind of static. This is the film where I feel like his use of stillness and this very slow, deliberate pace, which worked in something like Halloween, kind of even worked in The Fog. Uh, and even in Christine, I feel like Christine is another example of a film that uses that pretty effectively. In Prince of Darkness, though, I, I just thought, man, this film is, one, it's just dragging. It's kind of a slog. But then when you start to get into the story and what is happening, there's this church that has this... Uh, it's like this fluid that's a mysterious thing. These students are studying it. These, uh, what's it like, scientists, they're studying this. And they're all trying to understand, like, what it is and what kind of qualities and powers it might have. But somehow it's actually secretly, uh, like, the devil taking shape of this vat of fluid. I don't know. I I just thought it it kind of it took such a left turn when that starts to become the premise. Uh, 
I, I, re- I really couldn't, I couldn't ride with this one. And even the acting, some of the acting in this film is just really not great. And I think it, it hurts the film in a way because I, it's already a stretch for me to try and go with this story. But, uh, I don't know. I, I tell you this, I mean, I think honestly, the, the most effective part of this film is kind of right at the end. The part where you're getting this like grainy TV footage and you're getting these distorted voices. It almost looks like very found footage style storytelling. And it's only one moment and not even really an entire scene. It's like just a moment at the end of the film. And I think that is the part that I, I just feel like there must have been other filmmakers other fans who watched that and said, oh, there's a whole film right there. And if you look at something like uh, Wreck or, or even something like Cloverfield, you know, the, these more modern found footage, uh, Blair Witch Project even, I feel like they might have been born out of something like that one moment in this film. That's how strong I think it is, but also how much it stands out from the rest of the film. And so, you know, the use of, of this kind of stillness and this quiet, really kind of eerie setting, uh, this one, it doesn't really work so much, I don't think. Like, it didn't really engage me at all. I mean, I, I didn't find anything to be scared about with it. I mean, you've got to buy into the whole religious subtext of the film, I guess, but to me, that's it was such a stretch because we're just talking about this green goo that is also the devil. What? No, 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 I'm sorry. So, I, you know, that was me catching up with Carpenter. And one of them I feel like was all right. The Fog, I could probably sit and watch it again and maybe look a, a little more closely. But Prince of Darkness, I, I, I'm good. I would much rather sit and watch They Live Again, which is a really great film, and it's fun, but it's also got some interesting thematic, conceptual things in it. Christine, I love that film. I mean, based on the book, Stephen King, but also just the film itself. I think it really does some interesting stuff with practical effects of how do, how do you make this car come alive? And even Escape from New York, I think that's a classic that is is really, you know, there was a sequel to it, and I feel like there have been films that have tried to do the same thing, but that's a one in a million shot that that film worked. So, you know, Carpenter in the 80s, I feel like it was a little bit of a mixed bag. There was more hits than misses, but um, it's definitely the, I, I feel like the window where Carpenter really, nailed down like being a master of of horror films and fantasy and and science fiction and uh, you know because if you look at anything after the 80s into the 90s it gets real rough you know you got the memoirs of an invisible man of a chevy chase it's just a strange film um in the mouth of madness you know that film i remember watching when it i used to work in a movie theater right when this film came out and I remember watching this and thinking, all right, John Comperton is back. He's doing like a, a full-on horror film. But 
and and I watched it again as part of this actually, but I'd seen it before, so I don't really count it necessarily. But also, it's not a great film. It's not a great film, and I think I got what it was trying to do, talking about literary horror and when it becomes too real and when fans kind of go over the top and cross lines and what does it mean for a writer to possess these kinds of thoughts and put them on paper and and you know what kind of forces are you dealing with you know i think that was all part of the idea but oh man it's such a rough watch and and after that you've got village of the damned not great either. Escape from L.A., which I think, as a sequel to Escape from New York, uh, I I don't know. I like the ending of it, but everything before it, um, nah, I, I'm good. And, you know, from there, it just really kind of, I don't know, it, it kind of peters out. So I, I I feel like the 80s was really the the era for John Carpenter, where his films really connected, really worked with the right technology and the right, the right casting, everything really came together for most of those films. On the other hand, now we're talking about also David Cronenberg, who, you know, if I remember the first film I saw of his, it was The Fly, actually, which was here in the 80s. And that was a film that I had no idea at the time who David Cronenberg was. I didn't really know even who uh, Jeff Goldblum or Gina Davis were. I just remember seeing this film and thinking, what is this? Like it was one of those that at, I would have been at the age of like, what, 10 or 11, something like that. And I just remember it was a film that, you know, friends or, or people would talk about and say, you've got to see this film. I can't believe what they did in this film. How did they do it? Like, this is crazy. So here, you know, we start 1981 Scanners. I'd never seen it before other than a couple of clips from it. I didn't really understand what the film was even about. But having now sat and watched it, here's the thing with David Cronenberg that I, uh, I didn't really put together until now. But all of his films that I've seen, okay, I've not seen them all, of course, but all of the films that I've seen, they always feel like just to the left or just to the right. They're like just, they're like adjacent to our reality, to our world. Like everything is pretty straightforward with the characters, with the settings, but there's just something that's off. Whether it's uh, in terms of like the scanners, there's like a, a an element to humanity or like a technology or some kind of mystical force or something that's just shy, just outside of our reality. And so the stories are often about like how those things intersect with actual reality, but everything is set. It's, it's strange. It's like everything's in a fictional universe, but it looks just like our real universe, if that makes sense. And trying to put that together, like, why does that always feel that way, at least in the films I've seen. I mean, maybe it's because Cronenberg is from Canada and he has a, like just a little bit off center or let's say different point of view or perspective than 
maybe a typical American filmmaker. And so here in Scanners, I think it's really clear from the beginning, like this film just feels strange and it feels different. And when we start to get into the concept of it, of these people that have these sort of telepathic powers, they can uh, do things with their mind, they can read each other's minds. And and they also kind of formed this secret like underground network of of uh, people who are either in hiding or trying to organize. And it's a strange, it's a strange kind of concept, but I think it actually really works. Um, the the problem I think is also just like in Prince of Darkness. I feel like this film, for all of its ideas. And some of the execution, even, is kind of hindered by the acting. Like Michael Ironside here as Revic, the the villain of the whole story, is actually really solid. I mean, he's got a little bit of charisma. He's got a little bit of a snarl to his villain side. But he feels real. He feels like a real person who's got real intentions, not just a cartoon character. Even Patrick McGuhan as a guy who's kind of a coach, as a, as a mentor, as a teacher, as a protector to the main character, Cameron, who I don't know if I've ever seen the, the guy who played him in anything else. And so that's where you start to see like some of the, uh, you start to see some of the problems with the film, like, especially when you get into this like battle of telepathic powers and people making their you know, closed eyes and strained faces. And it's like, okay, take one step back. That just looks ridiculous now. It looks like something that would easily be a parody today. And so uh, I think for all the impressive technology and, and the, the special effects and the filmmaking, when you don't have just either actors that are up to quality or maybe just they're not dialed in in the right ways to the characters, uh, I think that can, I don't know, to me, it just kind of puts me off, you know? So I, I don't really know if I enjoyed it entirely. I could see the value in it. I could see how it really pushed the envelope, really made a, a, a mark. But, um, the other film I, I wanted to watch here was Videodrome, which came right after Scanners, 1983. And that one was much more um, much more impressive in terms of not just uh, how much further it pushed things with the, all the special effects and the horror elements of it, but even conceptually, like really taking a look at this idea of a TV programmer, James Woods. He's just looking for the next thing. He wants something that's going to get everybody's attention, draw the eyeballs, you know? And whether it's sex, violence, it's just something undeniable, something that people can't resist watching. And the idea of, you know, this kind of shady, sketchy, pirated video that has some really disturbing content and it's one of those things you, you just can't look away from, even though you probably shouldn't look at it in the first place. And it's, it's tempting in, in terms of it's, it's about 
giving into impulses and urges and really going down a dark road if you can't kind of get a handle on everything. And what's interesting is there's even a moment in this film where it kind of leads up to a, like a workplace shooting, like a killing spree. And I just feel like in 1983, that was such a foreign kind of horrifying concept. And it is still, but the fact that it's actually more common now, I, I, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I feel like this film put it out there. Like these are the dangers of this kind of culture, of this kind of like media landscape, the content of this kind of nature. Like when it goes unchecked and there's no sort of uh, standard for, hey, this is not something people should be taking in, consuming. It's, it can be dangerous. And so here, this film is, I mean, it's pretty prescient in terms of telling us, like, here are the kind of things that can happen if you just throw caution to the wind. And we just, everybody gets to do whatever they want, watch whatever they want, say whatever they want. Yeah, but at what cost? And, you know, in some ways we've seen that, like television and films, they don't really go there so far. I mean, there are certainly films that have pushed the boundaries over the years, TV shows also. The thing that this film couldn't have predicted, I'm sure, in 1983 is the power of the internet and how that is a whole different thing than TV or films, right? That is a much more interactive and much more complicated and literally a web of content. And honestly, it can become like a cesspool of ideas and thoughts, and it can lead to some really horrible situations, as we have seen, as we have seen, especially with the, you know, the rise of social media in the last 15 years or so, it's changed how people interact with each other, it's changed what people expect of the world around them, or how they see the world around them. And I, you know, this film feels like, it, I mean, it's warning us about the power of television and, and that kind of thing. But I really think it's actually, it, it applies more to the power of the internet, the influence of the internet, put it that way. Oh, man, I, I got to say, this is actually a new favorite in terms of how thoughtful it is, while also giving us like a pretty graphic representation of the darker side of human nature. So that was an interesting look at uh, a couple of films from uh, from Cronenberg in the 80s. You know, the other films I, that I could look up real quick are The Dead Zone, which uh, based on Stephen King also, but a uh, very good film, I think. Christopher Walken really does work in that. The Fly, of course. Um, Dead Ringers, which I have not seen. I know they remade that as a TV series, I think, earlier this year, just like a few months ago even. But these two, Videodrome and Scanners, these are really, I, I feel like they're really important films. And maybe that's me super late to the party. But still, the idea that uh, these films are, are out there and they really were in, the, in, a, in a point in time during the 80s where horror needed 
this kind of shot in the arm to really take things to another level. Now, of course, Cronenberg has gone on to do a lot more interesting work since then. I mean, into the 90s, into the 2000s, even still making films. I mean, Crimes of the Future just came out this year or last year, I guess. But I'm sure that is one that um, I need to see because I feel like it's one of those that pushes things even further. And of course, uh, his son, Brendan Cronenberg, is doing his own work, and it's just as impressive and just as disturbing, of course, but it's worth watching. So anyway, that's a couple of films, four films in particular, that um, I just wanted to catch up with and kind of kick off uh, October horror Halloween month type of deal, and we'll, uh, we'll keep it going from there. So look, I'll be back in another episode soon. But until then, hey, man, you know what it is. You know what to do. Go watch something new.